Welcome to Observations from Life. This is your host, Scott, and I'm looking forward to having a great conversation with you today. Thank you so much for listening in. Okay, I've got a really interesting guest that's going to be uh, with me today, Hannah Smith. Uh, She grew up an only child. Her parents both experienced serious mental health issues as she was growing up. At age 13, she was part of a cult, and uh, we'll be talking about that as well. That was very emotionally and mentally abusive. She managed to escape that. Uh, Life wasn't always easy for her early on. Uh, She married an abusive man that was in a supposed healthy church. She ran off to India for several years, uh, and but now she has gotten her life in order and is actually using a lot of the things that she went through to help other people to um, be able to understand and overcome some of their issues. So Hannah, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so honored to be here. Thank you. Well, I'm glad to have you. Uh, we ran across each other on Twitter. Uh, I don't remember the exact discussion that drew me uh, uh, to reach out to you, but very excited to have you on. So tell me a little about Hannah. You uh, So you grew up not easy, not an easy life. So tell me a little bit about that. Well, yeah. So where to begin, right? I've had, I feel like I've had four or five lives. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm an only child, like, uh, like you mentioned, and my, my mother was, um, very seriously ill, had, um, uh, what was called schizoaffective disorder and mm-hmm. was, abusive in a lot of different ways. And then my father, he worked at night, so he slept most of the day, but he had a lot of trauma in his history and he was just very, very angry. And so there was a lot of dysfunction. And I also had, um, besides, you know, sort of an emotional and mental abuse from the parents and physical from my dad, there was also some, um, some sexual abuse as a young child from outside, uh, sources. And oddly, oddly, meaning that I hadn't even heard of something like this until probably in counseling school, my my mother. And so I had all of that experience. And then I think that was one of the things that set me up to be prime candidate for a cult at 13 years old. I could imagine. So, so growing up, I mean, obviously, when you've got, um, I haven't understood, I've got a mental health background, so I do understand schizoaffective disorder and the um, kind of what entails with that. And, and of course, your father, I'm assuming PTSD of some type. Yes, yes. So as a child, not really understanding, like for you, that's your frame of reference. This is what parents are, and I'm sure you love them and, and try to survive in that. What was it like trying to understand their behavior toward you or toward each other or even toward themselves when you're, you know, 10 years old or 11 years old, just trying to understand life? Well, interestingly, I don't actually have a ton of memory of my mother before probably the age of 11 or 12. And she left when I was 12. She, my parents divorced, I lived with her. And then, um, she actually, uh, this is a rather like poignant experience at around 12. It was, it was actually Halloween day um, in the evening. I had a, a boyfriend and she had um, forbidden me to see him after 
having him live with us for a while. It was just very, very chaotic. And so I was mad at her. And she woke me up in the middle of the night and um, said that she wanted to go home and be with Jesus, but she knew she couldn't do anything about that. So she asked if I would help her. Wow. Yeah. So that day I went to school and I wrote about it in one of my journals at school because I didn't think anybody read those things. <sighs> and by the middle of the day, uh, I was taken from her to a, a children's shelter and I never returned back home. And a few weeks later, she came to some of the court things, but a few weeks later she left and I was in foster home for foster care for quite a while. And so before that, Honestly, my only memory of my mother is standing in the kitchen most of the time. Um, I do have flashes of things that she did with me that are, you know, not so great. Um, but I, but my dad, we, we played and did things together. He was just very frightening to me. So mm -hmm. I think when I look back and I remember my childhood, I think the thing that hits me is that I just, like you said, thought that's the way it was. It never occurred to me to tell anyone or ask for help or anything like that. I just, I had this habit every day of not wanting to go to school. And I would say I had a stomach ache and yeah, I had a lot of those issues, missed right. school a lot, yeah. that, that sort of thing. So I don't think when I was a kid, it even occurred to me that something was wrong. That, and I think that's pretty common. I've talked to children that have come out of families like that, and it's like, well, I, I just thought that's how it was. I thought everybody else was experiencing the same thing or some version of it, even though they knew something didn't feel quite right, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. So your mother actually wanted you to to uh, kill her or assist her in some kind of suicide. You write about it, and thank God some teacher read it because mm -hmm. I don't know how that would have played out. Um so from there, you went into foster care. And so this was around age 12. Now, I know at age 13, you said that you ended up in a cult. So how yeah. how did that unfold? Like what happened that you ended up joining or were you, did you live with someone that was part of it? Or No, it was such an odd. I mean, <laughs> I and, and, like and if you don't mind me asking where this, where were you located? California. In we California, were in okay. the midsection of California. Um, and... So I had this boyfriend and then this issue with my mom. And then I went into foster care. I was in a big shelter for a while. And then I lived mm -hmm. in um, a private foster home for some time because my dad didn't want me at that time. No one in my family would really talk to me. I'd try to call them and they would just hang up. So because, um, you know, my mother had some interesting things to say about me. And I was I was rebellious. I was angry. I was all sure. kinds of things. But it was 12, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, so at a certain point, I think I wrote my dad and I said, please, I'll be good. You know, can I come live with you? And so he took me in. And I remember we sat at the kitchen table and he gave me $40. And he said, I'll give you $40 every two weeks you're on your own. Don't bother me unless the house is on fire. I'm going to be sleeping. Um, you know, but you got a place to live. So I pretty much took care of myself. Well, that was, I think the, like I had, maybe I was just turned 13, which is in September. So it was that time of year. And then in January that next year, my boyfriend who was uh, several years older than me was in the army 
uh, reserves had an accident, a, a, a very severe accident, and was in the hospital um, for quite a while. So I took a I took a card to his church. Okay. And his church, it was a cult, but I didn't know it at the time. So I went there and they were so nice. Like well, they offered course. to drive me home and they <laughs> offered to pick me to all these things that I had never experienced anybody like asking me things like, do you need anything or whatever? I had never experienced that. So well, I that, was just like taken in. <laughs> that is, I can imagine and that, you know, actually that is, I mean, that's like a classic case. You know, you've got a home life where it's unstable. Uh, you're not really loved or wanted or, or whatever. And then you suddenly have this group of people that are all about caring for you, loving you, giving you the support, probably the emotional as well as maybe even financial or food or whatever, just that, that sense of community. Yes. Yes. And I can remember very distinctly being shocked and thinking, they offered to pick me up. And and the way I even thought at that point in my life, I was like, that means they have to get up a few minutes earlier and do their hair and do that and drive across town. Like it was so amazing to me. And I remember running home from school, I had a bunch of pen pals and right. even junk mail meant so much to me because I was like, somebody put my name Connection. on this. Yes, yeah. yes. So, so it's interesting that you were hyper aware of how much it might inconvenience someone just to do a kind act. Yes. You know? Yes. yes. Um, so uh, can you say the name of this culture? Is that something we're not going to? No, it's, oh. it's, I, I'm writing a book. It's all going to be out there. Okay. Um, it's not a cult that, so it's interesting because I did just see the, the shiny happy people and yes. I knew brother oh Bill. God. That's yes. what we called him, brother Bill. Um, but it wasn't, it was, it was, a lot different from that in a lot of ways. We were communal, very small, not over like looking for world domination or anything. In fact, we were one of the very few in all of human history that knew God kind of people. Of course. So it, it yeah. when I first started it, it was called Gospel Assembly. Okay. It, it, it was just isolated. We weren't part of anything bigger. A few years later, it changed to Gospel Assembly New Horizons, something okay. like that, because we had a homeschool. Um, I went to the homeschool for a while, but, but part of the thing with me is, um, because I, I know now that there was severe abuse, uh, sexual abuse and things, but I lived with my dad and my dad was not involved in it. Oh. So I didn't, I didn't have that experience there. I had already had that in my life, but I was tortured emotionally as much as they possibly, I mean, it was like, you are the one. I think for like the first four months, it was heaven. And then I distinctly remember walking in and uh, the leader, I have a hard time calling him a pastor. The leader um, said to me, okay, it's about time now. We're done with all of this. You know, it, your mercy's over with and whatever. Yeah. And now it's time for you to, and he would, he wouldn't look at me. He would make disgusted faces at me. I mean, just, oh, you're a kid. I have this liability, you know, but I can't make you leave and all this. So it's basically stuff. suck you in and then break you down. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Wow. A very common thing they did was something called wash nights where they would make us, they would, usually a wash night would be the, the leader would talk about something someone did that wasn't okay. But for me, I was made to stand up while everybody else in the church went around and told me what was wrong with me. And one of the biggest things was my hair. 
Okay, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hold on. So you're how old at this time? The first time I had a wash night was probably 14. I can Okay, so you're a four, 14-year-old girl, which that alone is is um awkward. Yeah. And so you stand you have to stand in front of the are you up front or kind of no, in the middle I just standing stand in your pew or whatever? In my pew. So you stand, everybody's around you seated and they tell you all the things wrong with you? Yeah, they go around the room. You're dumb, you're lazy, you're thingy. And there was so much hair stuff. I was the only blonde in the church and it was back in the day where the hair was big and my oh, hair yeah. doesn't do that. So I remember the hours and hours of ratting my hair and perming my hair and doing all these things. And I would go home and wash my hair two times a day, which was huge because I would go to school, take the bus home, wash my hair, go to the church. We weren't considered working for God unless we were physically at the church. Right. So, yeah. So just stuff like that. So about how many people were in the congregation? We fluctuated between 40 and 65, I think, the 15 years I was there. So on on a typical wash night, how many people would criticize you? All of them, oh <laughs> even the little kids sometimes. So Are whoever was there, no, it, it was amazing. That's what, yeah. It, and so uh, you just stand there and take it? I, yeah, and I can see myself because I feel like there was a period of like out of body watching and I just yeah. see myself with my head down and I'm crying and I'm just like, it's just and horrible. the thoughts in my head are like, why? I mean, I'm I'm bound for hell, you know. And they would say those things, like yeah. the pastor would shake his head. You don't know, you're headed off to hell or something. So, so were you also expected to participate when other people had a wash night? No, see, that was the big difference, and why I feel like because I couldn't be abused in certain ways, it was. This was my particular thing. Other wash nights, it was only the pastor. He would just tell people, oh, watch this one. He's doing this or that. I had to stand up and everybody shared. That happened multiple times, including like laying on of hands and trying to cast demons out of me and stuff like that. I'm just blown away. That's incredible. And so how long did this, how long were you in this state of having to go through these wash nights and well um i was in there for 15 years and about two or three weeks before i finally escaped was the last one and how frequently would you say they occurred um they they got less over the years um early on it was almost probably almost monthly um, probably as we got on in the years, I don't know, every few months, just whenever. Would, would you know what's coming? Like, would, would they say like, Hannah, next week you're going to get hammered? Or Oh, no, no. And that was one of the biggest things is there would be the six. So he, he taught something about inner circle and outer circle. Mm-hmm. So I was always in the outer circle and there were certain ways to get in. And, and it wasn't exactly spoken, but you just knew. And so there would be these little things I would look for and I would be like, oh, oh, I'm doing better. I'm getting closer. And then boom, something like that would happen. And I'd have no idea. And it was very like, here's how you're supposed to behave. For example, it wasn't the six inch rule that um, that that uh, brother Bill, they called him, had. Mm -hmm. It was like girl could not be in the sanctuary alone with boy. Doesn't even matter if it was a little kid. And so they would say that. 
but then say they would tell me to go do something where I was in that situation and then I'd get in trouble. Yeah. Constantly. But I, I didn't know it was very subtle. So this, this church for lack of a better term, uh, (laughs) we're going to call it a church. Mm -hmm. What was kind of their general belief system? Like, were they kind of your standard evangelical types, but on crack or was it like a totally different, you know, it was afterwards I went to school and I studied a lot about it. Um, we had very similar kind of teaching to like the Korish, David Korish, you know, Mm -hmm. he was, our leader was the man of God and yeah, all these kind of things. I didn't know because I was a kid when I came in and stuff. I've had, I have still friends with a couple of people who escaped. I didn't know about all of the sexual abuse, although I lived in the house with them for a while. So I would see people going in and out of his room, but we learned to justify. We learned to, Oh, yeah. the man of God can have a woman, you know, and all this stuff. And so, um, this, the scriptures like were very, um, of course, randomly taken out of context, but they, uh, I think that there are some belief systems around this 144,000 perfect overcomers. Or right, like right. That's kind of the Jehovah's Witness yeah. thing. Yeah. So some Jehovah's Witness was in there. Some Mormon was in there. Very charismatic. If you weren't crying and flipping around on the floor, you weren't praising God, yeah. right? There was a lot of that. Um but then there was just some some weird, you know, we weren't allowed to read any books, go anywhere. We were very communal. I like when to, you when you say read any books, do you mean read any books of a religious nature or do you mean read any books, period? Any books. Any we could only read what he allowed us to read because everything else was So this guy was was kind of your your I mean it was a true cult leader. Absolutely. Um and then people so was his what was the makeup of the congregation? Was it mostly women, men, kind of even mixed? It was a lot of families. Uh, it was a lot of couples and families. There was me and one other single woman my age, a little older than me. Um, there were a couple of single moms with some kids. And I was only ever allowed to hang out with the single moms and their kids or the um, other lady that was roughly my age who we didn't really have a lot in common. But I wasn't allowed to like talk to m- other people too much. Cause I might hear something about sex or whatever. Right, <laughs> I mean, right. that, it was extremely pure, but it wasn't, we weren't, we weren't mainstream. So when I was watching, um, shiny, uh, happy, happy, shiny people or shiny, happy, shiny, happy people. I was yeah. like, Oh my God, that was so us, except we didn't have the lingo. And it was like you said, like on crack. <laughs> so right. yeah. Well, and, and I think the thing with shiny, happy people that really hit me and hit a lot of people is it was so prevalent. It is, I should say, so prevalent in the churches and it just spread like wildfire. Our church wasn't part of that, the group. We didn't, uh, but a lot of those teachings were pretty consistent with things that we grew up with. And in fact, it's kind of interesting because they mentioned that um, the the guy, the main one, I forget his name now. Um, they said he was not Gothard, but the, the, um, Oh, Oh, the, um, Duggar. Duggar, Duggar. Duggar. Yeah. So he was missionary Baptist out of Arkansas and, um, mm-hmm. I was missionary Baptist in Texas and we were in association with the missionary Baptist in Arkansas. So I thought, man, I, I was like a, you know, ha- just a step away. Fortunately, my parents were decent people and 
I think would not have bought into, you know, especially the, the more abusive stuff. Yeah. So you're, you're in this, it's kind of weird because you're not living with them. So you're going home, but your dad's kind of absent in terms of interactions with you. So you draw into this, this group and I'm assuming that, um, cause you mentioned they didn't, you weren't considering doing God's work unless you were there. So I'm assuming they got a f- lot of free labor out of you. This, that's kind of one oh, of the things, oh, yes. you know, oh, building buildings, washing things. Oh yeah. Yes, yes, Even yes. the hillside. I don't know if you've seen the hillside stuff, but they've talked yeah. about how basically it's free labor, you know, oh, you yeah. call it volunteering yeah. for Jesus or whatever, but you're, all you're, day. And then you can see me, I'm fair. And we had all day wash car washes, go house to house selling tamales and peanut brittle. I burned oh, very sunburned, deeply, yeah. and I would try to stay in the shade, but then I would be, you know, in trouble for not working. So, did you have friends that were not part of this group? Not until college. I stayed with my dad until five days after I turned eighteen, and then I moved in with everybody. So, in, into the cult. Yeah, I was okay. always with somebody in. The and cult. where were they located? In in California at that time, they're in they're in Henderson, Nevada now. And so the they're still around. Died, they're still around. The leader died last year, um, so I don't know what's happening now. Um, but yeah, we were in California and we were in Central California, but then we moved to the South Bay area okay. at a certain point. So, um, how did you, I mean, what happened from there? You moved in with them. Were you ever, and, uh, and I mentioned this to you before we, we, um, set this up. I don't want to exploit your, your trauma, but I, you know, you, you said you were ready to talk about it. So when, once you moved in, did you get closer to this inner circle? Was there ever any time that you were, uh, other than the whitewashing, is that what they call it? They, uh, what, what, uh, it was called, um, wash night, uh, wash night, wash night. Yeah. Um, other than that, what other kind of things were you subjected to? Well, um, so lots of must be there for every single thing. A mm-hmm. lot of, a lot of real emotional and mental torture. So, uh, there was one older lady that I called grandma in there and she was a little bit of a saving grace for me because she would give me a hug or something. When I first entered in, I had the boyfriend um, mm-hmm. and he was part of the church, um, but not very. And so we were actually going to get married. The leader was going to actually have my my dad sign off for us to get married. But then things happened. He ended up married somebody else. And so from that point on until the day I left, people were not allowed to touch me. I was not allowed. I didn't know hugs, no nothing. So that wow. was wow. Um, I wasn't allowed to be alone with kids. There was one friend I had in college that I invited and um, there was some abuse that actually happened with her and me. Um, and it was found out because of some other things that happened in the church to other people. And so, but when it was, it was all blamed on me because I had been there longer. And so I wasn't allowed to talk to anybody. People wouldn't look me in the eye. Um, periodically I would be told, you know, she has to sit by herself. So Um, you're like an outcast inside this group. But I've always been smart. That's been my thing. And so I taught in the school and I, I, so I was always there in the school. So the one saving grace I really had was I kept going to college and Mm -hmm. I went on to college, which wasn't really allowed, but 
I think I learned early on how to connive <laughs> yeah. and I would like, oh, but I'll bring in more money and all that if you let me go. And I promise I'll just go and come home. And I got to see little bits of reality out there, but mm -hmm. I was still quite until later in um, when we moved to the South Bay area and I started going to San Jose State, I always was able because I was a good dog. I came in when I was little, so I believed the stuff. Right. I did what I was told. He, they, they let me have a little leash there. I could go to school. Where it was the only place I ever succeeded at anything or felt good. Well, I got into a, a, a scholarship program called the Ronald E. McNair Scholars. And one of the things that the leader believed was if it's free, it's from God. So oh, if, uh, you know, somebody drops $20 on the ground and they're out their dinner, it's from God for you, you know? Wow. So I got a free trip. It's convenient. Went, yeah. So going all around and stuff like that, I got to actually start seeing other people. And at that point, I actually remember probably one of the most poignant things in my whole life. There were two big things. One was I was standing outside the, I lived at the pastor's house for several years and um, we were having a yard sale and I was praying for somebody's eyes to be opened for something. And for the first time in my life, I think I was 26 years old. I said, but God, if it's me, if I'm wrong, please mm -hmm. show me. And I just feel like the heavens opened or something changed wow. in that moment. And after that, for the next 40 nights, I remember I went over and I, there was a song by Stephen Curtis Chapman called free. And I just turned it on and I didn't even make it back to my bed. I was on my face, just crying. I didn't even know what was wrong at that. You point. just, you just, you knew something was wrong and you knew this wasn't what your life should be like, which oh. given how you grew up with your mom and then your dad, and then this, you haven't yet really seen joy and normal and freedom, but no. you knew it was out there somewhere. I don't know at that point, if I knew that, to be honest, because we were taught that God's happy to bruise his son and misery is the way we're supposed yeah. to be and all that. But what I knew was I wanted to please God. Because the one thing I did have, I, my parents weren't religious. But when I was little, I had a closet and I would go in the closet. My parents would scream and yell and things would happen. And I would talk to God. I didn't know it was God. I just mm -hmm. knew there was that numinous thing, you know. And so I just had that really strong, like, there's something and I'm not doing it, whatever it is. And this is sort of slowly burgeoning awareness that there's something I'm supposed to do. It wasn't so much about being happy or okay right. or whatever at that point. Okay. Yeah. So how'd you get out? So oddly enough, um, this is going to be an interesting book for people to read because the internet came along and because I was in a, I was actually in the physics program in the master's level physics program at San Jose State. So I had to have a computer and I okay. started um, getting into chat rooms. And uh, I met a guy and he moved to where we lived and started coming to the church. Oh my gosh. It was crazy. And it he was there for like six weeks and he's like, y'all are nuts. I'm out, <laughs> which is, he was who I was praying for. So then I found another one and he moved. <laughs> it was the 
craziest thing. Apparently, you can uh, get people to move. Oh, um, I was a very good. <laughs> good recruiter for them, yeah. Yeah. So be- be- between those experiences and starting to see things, I had met one. I had met a guy, and I had actually gone to see him in Texas. Okay. And um, and I was just like, I remember getting on the plane, going, "Well, this is going to get shot down out of the sky because I'm like totally sitting here and whatever." So, um, with all that experience, I was slowly starting to just because there's a whole other realm that I'm I I we don't I'm sure I have time to go into, but just the fantasy world that I had to live in to survive it mm-hmm. was was just. Uh, just killing me in a lot of ways. And I just kind of lost, I mean, seriously, just lost my grip. And um, there was a whole bunch of things that happened. And I finally knew I have to leave. This is not okay. I don't know why. And I still believe a lot of what this stuff. And so long story short, I reached out to a church in Texas. And I remember calling the the day it was called New Hope. And I was like, I need that. So I called and talked to the lady. And I was like, Hey, is it okay to go to the bathroom during service? What if you have pneumonia? Can you stay home? I was asking these kind of questions. Wow. And she was like, uh, so she let me mail boxes to her from that day. I started packing up to leave and I reached out to a local church and I spent six hours in a little, um, uh, youth pastor's office, just poured my story out. So you're so. Let me just follow. So you're, you're kind of sneaking your things out. You're mailing your stuff to, te- is this to Texas? Yeah. And, um, no. <laughs> yeah. We're now whereabouts in Texas was this? Plano. Okay. Okay. So up near Dallas. And, um, mm-hmm. so you're mailing these things out, planning your escape. Yeah. And, um, and it must've been mind boggling. I can imagine being on the other end of that phone when you're asking questions that, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, for lack of a better term, a normal person would think, why in the world would you not be able to go to the yeah. bathroom, you know, or yeah. whatever. So then you get there and you're talking to the, the youth pastor and mm-hmm. kind of poured your heart out, you said. And yeah. was there any, so your start with the, with the cult was very accepting and loving, you know, until they mm-hmm. hammered you. Did you have any concerns that you were walking into the same kind of situation or was it just, did something just tell you, no, this, these no, people are true blue. Was, this is okay. No, yeah. It was amazing. The, the stuff that happened because this happened to be, I just happened to call a church that sort of specialized in shepherding movement, bringing people out of it. Oh, wow. I just okay. happened to get the right people. And, um, well, I you prayed, I prayed. Know, oh my gosh. Did I pray? But I didn't know what I was praying for. I know, but you know, it's amazing. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and this is not even it. Cause I just went nuts after that for a year. Oh, I mean, right. Yeah. But yeah. So, they so this, came this and got, got you me. to a place of this got you out. Yes. Yes. The little pastor, the young pastor, I say little, cause he was so young and eager uh-huh. and happy to help him and his wife came and and helped me put my stuff in my car one Wednesday night while everybody was off at church so I could escape because people left the church before, but it was always extremely violent. So um, I just yeah. had to escape. And so um, kind of middle of the night kind of. A yeah. Thing. Yeah. And I also knew I had to get out of California. I knew there was, yeah. if I was there, I'd get sucked back in. So I, I left. Okay. So life didn't get rosy then though. 
oh no, I, I, I didn't know how to buy toilet paper. I didn't know how to do anything. And I was so incredibly lonely. I put ads in the classified to find mm. men. I mean, just, I went like, well, it, it goes back to, you were looking for connections, you absolutely. know, and you didn't have it when you were a kid. You didn't have it at this church. You were isolated yeah. in a commune, which is yeah. tough. Yeah. And so now you're out there on your own with no skills mm -hmm. on how to have relationships or anything else. No. Um, so, I mean, you, my, I, I often tell people we make the best decisions we can at the time with the information we have. Absolutely. And so you probably made some bad decisions, but probably with the information you had, those were the best decisions you could yeah. make at that time. Yes. And I, I had some, um, at that point I had pretty much a virtual addiction to, um, like chat rooms. And I just, mm -hmm. I got myself in a lot of trouble and I did end up in the hospital and I was in the hospital for quite a while. Like in a psychiatric hospital? Yes. yes. Okay. They had, thank goodness. They had, they have such a wonderful, it was a trauma-based program by Colin Ross in Dallas because mm -hmm. there just happened to be in that church, a lady getting a PhD in psychology wow. who started meeting with me every week to start okay. helping me. And I'm, uh, yeah. So I was extremely dissociated and all kinds of odd behaviors and stuff. So your hospitalization, was it, were you, were, were you suicidal? Were you just, were you just not functioning? I mean, what, what led to you actually needing to be in inpatient care? Well, um, I had been meeting just whoever I could. And one night, a particularly horrible thing happened. And the next morning, um, the lady that I had first called, her name was Annalise. And, and the next morning, she um, I ca called me and, and I wasn't coherent. And so wow. the therapy, so she took me in. And um, I don't know that I was ever... I, I have been suicidal and, and things like that. I think I was just, I was completely detached. I just, just unable to, unsafe. yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, it's, it's interesting because people that are bad people can spot potential victims pretty well. Yeah. So if you're out combing the internet, just trying to find people to date, people to go out with, people to connect with, and you look, you have, you know, I don't want to say look desperate, but you're, yes. you're, you're well, a person who <laughs> is trying to connect, yeah. um, then predators are, I mean, they're very effective, just like the, the leader of the cult was, Oh yeah. they're very effective at spotting that. And, yes. you know, that's where you can end up. I, 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 I don't know exactly what happened to you, but I'm assuming you were probably sexually assaulted or yes. hurt in some way, you know? And so, yeah, you probably were at that point, in, you know, Incoherent, yes. you know, and I was, and I think the thing that tipped me was, um, when the person left, they said worth every cent. And there was a like wadded up dollar bill on the floor. Wow. And there was just That's something just in me that was hateful. just like, I can't, I, you probably I, felt worth about a dollar. Absolutely. <laughs> and I, and all this time in my head, there's like this push to please God. And how could he possibly be yeah. okay with me? And I kept trying, I would cry all day. I won't do it tonight. God, I won't do it. I'll be better. I'll be better. And just constant terror that I was going to have a wrong thought 
or, you know, all That's that hard. junk. Yeah. All my, I'm 30 by this point. I'm 30 yeah. years old. And so after that, I got a little calmer after the hospitalization, but then I married the first guy that came along and he was awful. And uh, long story short, that ended and I ended up in India. For okay. Yeah. So let's talk about that. Um, so, okay. You're, told you many stories. Yeah, I know this is great. I mean, you're you're. I say it's great. This is tragic so far because I know it ends well, and I see you now. I'm okay with this. Yes. But yes. oh my god, if I were okay. watching a movie and it was your life at this point, I would be like, do I want to turn this off or is it going to no. turn out okay? Yes. Okay, yes. so you okay, so you leave California, you go to Texas, so you you get an escape from where you were. Um, geographical cures, of course, don't work. Um, right. so you're still the same, um, unhealthy, um, um, uh, low self-image person because of what all was done to you. Clearly not your fault, but that's where you were. Right. So you go through these series of, of, of bad decisions. You married a guy who was a bad guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, how long did that last? Was it a fairly short marriage or five years? We moved now, I, to Seattle together, so about five oh God, years. You probably were nervous about even being on the West Coast again, but, um, or no? Not by that point. I guess you felt safe, at least with him. Uh, now, he was, I, I believe you put in your description that it, he was supposedly in a healthy church. This was, he so was this was supposed Dallas, to be a good thing. Yes. he. When I met him, he was in Dallas Theological Seminary. Oh, Jesus. pastoring a little church. Uh, the think, older folk that. The, that the, Kevin and Zach will have some uh, shutters I know, here. I know, I know. You know, it's so weird how everything keeps coming back on my podcast to Dallas Theological <laughs> and the, the shiny, happy people. Th- I'm like, what in the hell was going on there? But but, but it, it had to have felt good to to meet a man that, uh, at least if he's in seminary, you're looking to please God, you want to be a good person, and now you have someone that's accepted you as a wife, which means that now you can start your life as a good Christian wife and, and mother or maybe, or whatever that, you know, that you finally are, maybe you feel like this is what you were looking for. And obviously it didn't turn out that way. No. And what I I haven't said at this point is I was so beaten down and depressed when I was younger. By this point, I'm about 160 pounds heavier than I am now. So it's quite overweight. Um, I never did much to care for myself because I was told for 28 years, you know, yeah. worthless, nobody's ever want you. So as far as the like children, I knew I wasn't going to have kids. When, when I was 13, my mother told me I can't have kids. So I just oh, believed her. Okay. And so I just never even thought about it. I just, we, we talked about adopting a little bit, but he wasn't into kids either. So that was wacky. That's not what you That's, expect, right? Yeah, a, yeah. Yeah. So we were wacky. We were like, we're not trying to multiply here. We're just trying to get enough money to make the church keep going because we're it like us 40 people are it. So we really don't need anybody else except to keep it going. Weird stuff. Um, But so the very, like he was very emotionally abusive. You know, I I trimmed my hair one time and he's like, I can't even look at you. You're disgusting. You know, stuff like that. So, but I thought that was. What is the thing with your hair? What is the thing? I don't know. I You've got beautiful hair, by the way. I can, my, my, my listeners won't be able to see it, but you know, I'm, when you were talking about your hair earlier, I'm like, what's wrong with her hair? Well, back um, then it was very short and, and it was sort of flyaway and oily. I didn't know how to do anything. Yeah. I actually had, my first job was at, um, 
Burger King and they called my dad and said, can you teach her something about ironing her clothes and putting some deodorant on? Wow. I didn't even know. Yeah. So I didn't know how to deal with my hair. <laughs> so when you, okay. So you cut your hair and obviously that didn't meet his standard of what your hair should look like. Well, so. and I was overweight and you know, he was yeah. just hopeful. I guess. I don't know what it was about the thing. I don't know, but he was also had some very he wanted to do a group marriage. I mean, there was all sorts of okay. goofy stuff. Yeah. yeah. So he was, he was messed up. Yeah. And I was it, much healthier. And when you say group marriage, do you mean like an open marriage or well, I don't know what um, a group marriage. while we were still together, I met the guy in India <laughs> and I, I, he, I would be up all night on the, on the internet computer talking to this guy. He knew it. But he was like, okay, bring them over. Let's all be together. And okay. just crazy stuff. And very much wanted money. Money was a big, big thing. He threatened suicide if I said, no, we don't have the money for this right now. And wow. just all sorts of things. And so I was at least at a point at that point. I had already gotten my degree as a counselor. Y'all, I was a counselor and a teacher. I have master's degrees. And I, it isn't about intelligence, right? No, yeah. It isn't about intelligence. It's about that broken place. Yeah. that we're trying to fill. And so I knew enough to know something was wrong at yeah. that point. So, so I you, left. you left and you, you moved across the world. So you go to India. <laughs> yep. Threw everything in my two bags and I just can't imagine. And just wow. went off to India. My father lives in the Philippines now. He has for about 15, okay. 20 years. So I was like, I had nothing holding me here. My mom died in uh, 2003. I just, why not? I went so to Hindi went, school. I learned to read and write Hindi and then I moved. It, it, yeah. Wow. So how was, <laughs> how long were you in India? Five years. And how was that? I saw I a picture you posted. of. Loved um, it. Yes. Yeah. I, I never felt more at home. It was so easy to meet people. But by that point I was so much more spiritually healthy. I wasn't mm -hmm. like trying to, I mean, I had the gut that relationships weren't so great, but I mean, it was just, it was fun. I, I was different. I stood out. I got attention for probably the first time in my life in a positive way. You got to be way. yourself. Right. Yeah. And, and, and special. I felt special because anywhere I would go, obviously I'm not Indian. Mm. And so they would be like, hi, let's talk. And it was so, it was really, really a great experience. And I got a job at a wonderful company. And I just, first time in my life, I mean, before that I had lost a lot of weight. And, okay. and I was not able to talk very well, but I started teaching and yeah, I started to find myself there a little. Great. That's interesting. It's almost like a pilgrimage you went on. And during that period, you found more of where you're trying, who you're, who you're going to be and who yeah. you're becoming. Um, yeah. So what you were there for five years. Why, if it was that wonderful, what was going on that brought you back here? Well, and this is how I know that God has such infinite patience and such, oh my goodness, because a lot of me was getting healthier, but not my relationships. So okay. the guy that I was with was not a healthy guy either, of course. So I, I had serial relations. I was never without someone, but I was usually with someone while I found the new one. You had <laughs> a, kind of having so a I, backup. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I did. I found a guy at work and the guy I was with, I ended up trying to kick him out. And he, he came when the uh, guy, I, the new guy was at my house for dinner. He came in and attacked both of us. Oh, wow. I am. Um, I, I really shouldn't be alive. Like seriously, we were on the seventh floor. 
of this place. And thank God we ran into the bathroom because there's balconies everywhere. Um, Cause he was a big guy and he came in and he attacked us. And so thankfully people heard, came in, broke it up. That is so scary. It was. Yeah. And so after that, I was like, I was planning to stay there. We were going to just, I was just going to be a resident and whatever, but being on my own, it, it was after it was around 2012. So okay. it was getting harder and harder to keep the, the work visa. And after all that happened, uh, there was one night that was probably the biggest turning point of my life. I was laying on the floor, cement, uh, the, you know, marble floor had been crying for hours, just figured, you know, the only thing my life is good for is to give these uh, guards out here some entertainment. I'm just going to jump because I, you know, wow. that would have been it. I couldn't move. I tried to get up and I couldn't move. And it was like the entire room I was in disappeared. And I saw this like stage and I think me, cause it was a blonde girl. I saw it from behind standing on a stage talking. And I just felt like in my spirit, you're not done yet. And something happened in that moment. And the next thing I did was go to a Beth Moore simulcast <sighs> and just said, you know what? I'm still with this guy. And it was horrible what was happening with him. And I just remember telling God, you know what? I know when I go into work tomorrow, I'm still going to do this thing with this guy. I don't know how to stop. But what I can do is I can come home and I'm going to give. I mean, I, my name was not Hannah when I was born. Hannah said, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you. I got the name Hannah in Texas because I knew God was going to change my name. But um, because I kept saying, and my, my, my handle is Jubilee Song. Right. It's like, God, if you give me life, I'll give it back to you. And it was that, that was 10 years earlier. And it was that moment when I was like, it is. And when I came back, the I threw myself in. There were three very specific times I feel like the spirit said, are you sure? <laughs> yep. And I went, Ooh, and boy, I'll tell wow. you. Wow. Well, so you had a true dark knot of the soul. True, you know? true. I mean, that's operational definition. And by the way, I got chills when you told that story because <laughs> just picturing you laying there and thinking, I'm just going to end it. And suddenly you have this vision. And I think it probably was you speaking and being successful and, and on a stage, you know, can be taken in several ways. But given that it was from behind that you were seeing yourself, probably you, it's you touching others, reaching out to others, speaking to others, really making, you know, some impact. And, oh, that is amazing. That's a beautiful story. Thank I just, you. I'm, I'm. Trying to, I'm trying to get my head around it while we're talking. You know, it's it's one thing to to kind of know it already, but when, when I'm getting it live here, I'm really that's very moving. So you knew it was time to come home. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, home for you was back in the United States. Yeah, back in Seattle. I had one friend. I I reached out to her and I said I'm in trouble. It took several months, um, but I she took me in when I came back. And, um, so yeah, and, and, I moved back. And it's interesting you said that. Cause I, I, you know, I, I think sometimes again, I think we're so influenced by movies and stuff because in the movie version of your life, 
when that happened, you would kind of walk out of the apartment or wherever you are glowing and life then turns great. But, but you have this moment, you have this vision, you know, there's more, but you're still stuck. You're thinking to yourself, I'm going to work tomorrow and there's this guy and here I am. And and so I think really the, the fact that you are sharing that, yeah, it's not that like life turned on a dime. It's that you oh, knew you. Oh, no. You know. It was interesting because I moved out of the house that I was in, which I mean was like ripping my own skin off. It was so yeah. painful. And then there was this little, um, India is so amazing and so just contradictory. There was this little tiny restaurant called Chocolat that uh-huh. was, they had some chocolates, but they were, I don't know why they call themselves that. Anyway, it got to the point I would go into that restaurant every day after work and I would just sit at in the chair and bawl my eyes out. And they would just bring, I got the same food every time. And I would journal and journal and journal and write and try to figure out what to do. And they just would come in every day and just sort of hand me my plate of eggs. And I would sit there and I cried all the way to work and I cried all the way home. It was, it was the most painful time in my entire life. That's that's tough. Yeah. So I wonder what they're, you know, you got to wonder what they were. They were probably (laughs) thinking this poor girl. I hope she pulls through whatever's happening. I I hope at some point, if you said you're working on a book, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, in my little fantasy, whoever owns that place sees that book one day and says, that's that girl, you know, so who knows? So you go back to Seattle, uh, you call your friend, you say, I'm in trouble, I need to, to get out. And, and, and so you return to Seattle. And then what happens from there? So I just, I, I was a counselor, I knew some things. Um, and but you know, I knew them, but I wasn't doing them exactly. Mm-hmm. So I decided no relationships. I'm just doing this thing. You had to break away from that pattern. Yeah. I actually found a good, healthy church, really good church. I started getting involved there. Every single waking moment, I was either reading something, listening to a sermon, doing something to change that thought. Because I had what I called Mother Superior in my head, just this constant commentary of how stupid I was, how bad and all this, like just tortured my own head. You know, when that trauma gets ingrained, it's, mm -hmm. it's, you know, this because you work with, with trauma, people that have had trauma and it, it, I don't think people understand how scarring trauma is. Mm -hmm. Uh, We do Mm -hmm. the hospitals that I'm over, um, we do trauma informed care and that's, that's a big deal. And we also have a child, child and adolescent units and it really comes into impact there, but yeah, it's, it's a hard, I don't think people really get that. I think a lot of times it's like, quote, get over it, you know, and it's like, no, this, this is stuff. This is real. And this is, so I want to make sure and say this, because I don't know what our time constraints are and stuff. And, you know, I'll go back and what have you, but where I'm at today, like, God, God allows this process. He just does. And so I do a lot nowadays, like a huge focus of my life is um, uh, LGBTQ uh, inclusion in church and things like that. And so sometimes when I hear some of the things people say, I'm like, from my vantage point, I'm like, wow, (laughs) no, God knows this process. Yeah. Well, and you know, it's, I, I constantly use the the term spiritual journey because it is a journey and, and regardless of whether it's within Christianity or outside of Christianity or whatever, I've, when I've interacted with people and I have found with the more fundamentalist types, they, they even kind of cringe at the 
Osprey's journey. I'm not on a journey. Yeah. I already know what my destination is or whatever. And it, it's like, no, we, we're all on this and we're all trying to just figure this out. You know, um, I do want to talk about the, uh, cause this is actually where we connected was around the LGBT stuff. Plus it's pride month. Uh, and, and, and we are going to have this podcast out during this month, probably just in the next few days. Oh, yeah. Um, I was going to put it out today, but I just put the one out with my brother just the other day. And I'm, yeah. I want to let it kind of wind down sure. a little bit because, but anyway, um, so you had something occur or something that kind of opened your eyes around the LBGT stuff, right? Right. And I want to say that during all of this, I would say until I got back from India, like the whole world really was just me. I was in so much pain. I remember my best friend told me, you know, Do you, am I the only one in the relationship? You don't even check on me. So for the first time, I was getting to a point where I was healthy enough to actually think about other people and stuff. Over the next few years, I got married to a really great guy. And, you know, we, we ended up um, moving up to near my in-laws to help and what have you. But I'm just a good little Christian girl and I'm just going along. And, you know, obviously I don't really remember much from school. It's kind of interesting how my brain works because I'm also neurodivergent. I have ADHD and all these other things. And so, mm -hmm. so last year, <laughs> so I have never had any issue at all with, um, with people being gay or anything like that. My stepson is gay, mm -hmm. didn't have any trouble with it. But I knew that people did. And I just like, right. I kept telling myself, oh, it's not what I'm called. So I worked for a faith-based hospital at one point, And we were trying to make, we had male housing and female housing. And we were trying to uh, accommodate trans people. This was like five years ago. And because my son's gay, I was the resident expert. Of course. <laughs> of course. hilarious. Yeah. Um, but I did a lot of advocacy. And I, you know, whatever, learned a lot of vocabulary and everything. And still just going along, not doing much, never really, I mean, accepting, but not advocating or seeing any oppression in it or whatever. I mean, my, my foster family was black. So, but I grew up in the eighties, so we were colorblind and all these things I didn't see. So last year I move up here to this rather conservative area that I'm living and I'm going to have this couples therapy group and I make okay. a flyer. And on the flyer to announce it, I have a gay couple and a straight couple. Okay. Of course, because, sure. you know, I'm inclusive. I'm a therapist. I'm telling everybody that. But it didn't even occur to me that I ought not maybe send that to my church. <laughs> so oh, I did. wow. I emailed and said, hey, do we have any? Because this is how, even though I am like, I am a smart and savvy person, but my memory doesn't work quite like everybody else's. So I didn't even think about it. I forgot. So I got an email back like within an hour. Um, can we talk? <laughs> what? Wait. So what was really interesting? First of all, I had three days of absolute trauma response. I had panic attacks for the first time in years. I was like, oh, a pastor's oh, mad at me, you know. Or oh whatever. my God, I can imagine. Yeah. Had horrible yeah. for three days. But I can remember walking myself through. I'm okay. I'm okay. So that, because it happened on a Tuesday. Like it's ingrained now. It happened on a Tuesday. But they were so kind. They were very sweet. They were like, just tell us what you're thinking here, you know, and nobody was mean, but I was scared. So that Sunday when I went to church, I mean, I have these experiences in my life. I've only told you one or two, but I walk into the church and I'm just nauseous. 
I'm just nauseous and I don't know why. Partially I'd been having three days of, of this experience. And my husband had been deconstructing. I've been deconstructing for a while. He doesn't even want to go to church. I go by myself. So I go in and we start listening to the music. And at the end of every single verse, I hear, unless you're gay. So it'd be something like, you know, God is loving you and has all kinds of things, unless you're gay. And by the time that service ended, I was so sick. I couldn't stand up. And it was like, again, these things fell off my eyes. And I was like, oh, my God. It, it's so wrong. It's so wrong. And so just. And that's the experience of so many people that are gay. Yes. That's, that's what they go through. Absolutely. And I was just like, all of a sudden, I was like, how can I say this isn't my calling? What? You know, and so I don't know. There are some amazing things that happened. I cried constantly for the next month. I read every book I could find. I read Justin Lee. I read Matthew Vines. I read everything mm -hmm. I could find. I joined P Flag. I just was like, <sighs> I'm, I, you know what? I don't do things in little bits. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. I threw myself in and just over time, I did, I had never done anything on Twitter. And I was just like, you know what? I wonder if some of my thoughts might be helpful. I could learn something. And I started, right. you know, saying what I felt and, and it's just grown and grown and grown. And, and oh, it has your, you attract quite a few people on there <laughs> uh, positively and negatively. And yes, yes. <laughs> which is probably a good thing. Cause if, uh, if you weren't getting the negative attention, then you probably aren't really pushing the right buttons sometimes. Yeah, and, but I have like so many things cause I have that and then I have the church thing. And so I'm like looking at these meanies that I call them meanies and I'm like, Oh, you just don't know what you're missing. And I want to figure out how to kind of get to them too, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, it's just been such a blessing. And I just want to see, like, I've learned so much about racism and colonialism and just the whole thing in the last year. It's just like, I feel like I got to a place where I can finally go outward because the inward is whole, is whole enough at this point. We're all whole on this. Well, and that's interesting. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm reading Rain Wilson's, um, book oh, right now. Um, oh. if I ever get him on here, I'll be thrilled. Uh, but he, you know, he talks about, are you, have you read it or seen it? No, it's okay. next on my list. Okay. So he has a part at the very start where he talks about, there were two television shows that he felt really embodied, um, spirituality for him growing up. And one was the show Kung Fu. Uh, if you remember, you know, I don't know if you ever watched it, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, about a guy that, you know, he's, he knows Kung Fu, you know, and he goes, he has these adventures where he goes from town to town and kind of sets things right at times. But, but he's always looking for this place of peace and this place of, of, of wholeness. And then the other show was Star Trek. And um, he talked about how in Star Trek, um, that, you know, the, the main theme of Star Trek, the original series, well, all of them actually, but. Um, is that on earth we've kind of settled things like there's not infighting and racism and things yeah, like that. No, Money's no. not a thing anymore. And, and so he kind of talks about how both those, like a lot of people do the first one, they do the Kung Fu approach. I'm going to get myself right. I'm going to get right with God. I'm going to find my place of where I, you know, my peace or whatever. And he said, but then it's time to do the Star Trek thing. It's time to go out into other places. And it sounds like you, after all these years of, you know, you know, good and bad decisions and having visions and knowing that you have a purpose now that you've gotten yourself internally ready. Now you're, you're like the Star Trek people. You're ready to go out into these other places. 
and, you know, touch lives and yeah. really, you know, and that's amazing because mm-hmm. that is that evolution of our spirituality is if, if it's all internal, you know, mm-hmm. if it's always all about us, then it's a very self-centered, but once it becomes about other people, that's when you're really doing yes, the, the work that- of Jesus. Yes, and I don't know if you know who Alok is. Alok uh, does a lot of um, talking uh, uh, about gender and, and what have you, but I just love that they talk about that this that the trauma that we've all experienced. When I listen to these meanie folks who are so certain and they're just we're all yeah. going to hell because we love gay people or LGBT or you know whatever, I'm just like my heart breaks. I get mad. <laughs> Yeah. And I, I fall, you know, and I'm working on trying to figure out like, what's that balance and, 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 and all that sort of thing. I get, I get mad about it and I get hurt about it. But when I step back, I'm just like, Oh, the trauma. Oh, how I'm sad their feeling. lives are. Yeah. Because yeah. I was there, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I mean, I was, a, I grew up a conservative. I was a conservative pastor. I preached these same things and uh, my brother was gay. And, and I, when I found out, you know, that was distressing for me because mm-hmm. I knew he's a good guy and I was at the, in fact, he was a bit of a hero of mine growing up. Mm-hmm. And then I had to deal with this whole, mm-hmm. but wait a minute, he's chosen the sinful lifestyle. And, you know, it, and I still remember, I shudder now that I remember when uh, my son was younger, we were going to meet him. Uh, my brother lived in New York um, in California. He was come back and forth between those, but he was down in the, I think it feels like he was down in the Houston area, but for whatever reason, uh, I went down there to see him and I told him that my son had asked about him being gay and my response to my, and, and my son asked me what I thought about it. And he was young, probably mm-hmm. eight years old or something. Mm-hmm. And my response was, well, you know, that's, it's his choice whether or not. And, and what a horrible answer, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And I remember when I told my brother that he said, Joyce, I'm so sick of, you know, and that's, uh, I think it was that moment that I thought, wow, I thought I'd kind of let go of a lot of this. And I was more affirming because I was giving quote permission, but mm-hmm. honestly, they don't need my permission. No. And oh gosh. yeah. And it's not, this isn't about choice and, no. you know, trans people have kind of become the, 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 the whipping children now mm-hmm. of this movement and, and it's all political. It you know, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's all about having an enemy, you know, whoever mm-hmm. they are at whatever time right now, it seems to be women and trans people. Mm-hmm. Um, the, in fact, the, uh, you know, except for pride month, uh, uh, the, a lot of the lesbian and gays have been kind of off the hook because the trans people have been drawing all the attention, you know? And, um, but I remember, you know, when I was growing up, it was, you know, it was evil, mm-hmm. it was wrong. And, and, mm-hmm. and it, it hurts families. Because, you know, and, and I think you're right. I, you know, when I, sometimes you've seen my tweets, I, I, I try to be nice. I'm not always nice. <laughs> and there's, well, bullies, bullies press, hit my buttons. Yeah. I, I'm, you know, that's, that's when I kind of rise up, you know, is, is, um, even at work, um, I have, uh, when I, the job I'm in now, I talked to my supervisor before uh, she hired me uh, and she was offering the position and she said, you have a little bit of a reputation for you know, popping off at people. She said, but she said, when I spoke to people, they said it was always either in defense of the people you're serving or your staff. Yeah. And, uh, and that to me was a huge compliment. I'm like, yeah, and I'm still going to be that way. You know? yeah. But, but it's bullies get me. And sometimes when I find myself starting to really tangle with someone, I also realize they're coming from a, you know, a place of whether it's pain or, um, blindness, 
or whatever. And it doesn't excuse the fact they're harming others, Mm -hmm. but you know, they need a little grace too. We got to find a way to, to help them see it. And I was having a discussion with someone last week and we were talking about it because I have such a heart for these pastors who are trying to become affirming. And I know it's scary. Oh, I might lose a job or friends or whatever. And I had heart for that. And I still do. And we have to do it anyway. We've got to have yeah. the integrity internally and integrity, meaning the strength and everything working well together for us to say, right human right human care and love over comfort and ease we've got to get back to that it it is weird how that's become the the mark like it used to be you know you know do you believe in jesus or whatever you know do you do you believe treat others as you want to be treated you know the the basics you know and, and there's the creeds and there's other things that people follow, but like now suddenly it's like you have to hate gays or you're not a real Christian. I mean, mm-hmm. the number of people I see go after affirming pastors and say, and of course I always use pastors in quotes because they're not a real pastor. So, so yeah. it's like, okay, up until the moment you found out they're affirming, they were okay. But yeah. now suddenly they're going, they're not only just not a pastor, but they're demonic and they're going to hell and they're dragging people with them. Um, so you, you help, you do work, or at least you help with people in this situation. And I, and I want to hear about that because I think, I think for someone who is a pastor of a church, that coming out of being affirming, as we know, we, we have uh, somebody I think we're probably mutuals with on Twitter who lost their job, Mm -hmm. you know, because they said they love and appreciate and affirm LGBTQ people. Um, What kind of things do you do or, or what is your vision for how to help pastors navigate those waters? Is it, you know, tell me about that. I, I, I've been talking to people. I, I don't know the rules because I didn't grow up in normal society, which is actually a positive in some way. And because I, I miss certain kind of cues and things, So I'm kind of bold and I'll be just like, can we talk? (laughs) And Mm -hmm. I just talk. So I've had the like pleasure over the last few months of talking to different pastors around the country. Um, I I don't have a format. I am a group uh, certified group psychotherapist. I wanted to see if maybe some kind of support or something, but then I know that it's kind of scary for them and whatever. So I'm just right now, I, I, I tell people like, my DMs are open. Let's talk. If you have questions, I'm trying, you know, I see these folks who are out there just, you know, so certain about things and we've got to have something to hate and whatever. And I was them. I know what that is. I know that how tenuous it is that if, if anything they're saying isn't true, I know what that means, right? Yes. And so they hold so tightly because that's the trauma. If they have to realize, I remember a, a, a visual image I had after I left the church was that I had been standing on a, um, like, like on a glass box that shattered, right? Like mm-hmm. there was, and so I know the terror they have, and so it's hard to convince me that any of them are happy folks. <laughs> yeah, they're powerful, and they, you know, but they don't. And so I, I, I'm trying to do some stuff there. I've put together kind of a um, using the theory of change, how mm-hmm. there are stages in change. 
I've been talking to people about how can we best approach folks considering where they are in the theory of in, in this in the change, meaning that we have to watch our own character and not enter into these fights. And it's so hard. So yeah, I'm doing I, that. But I'm also just talking to everyone. I'm like, let's put our ideas together. So I have talked to people about writing a book. I mean, just all kinds of things. But I would love to see that there's some sort of network where um, if a pastor's curious or questioning or wanting to leave, they can contact somebody and get some support of some sort. But I think it's in that like early stages of being put together. It's it, it's interesting though. N- number one, that you're using change management theory because that you're right. I mean, the thing about change management is you have resistors, you know, and you mm-hmm. have people that are adopters and you mm-hmm. have this group in the middle. Mm-hmm. And so you do have to deal with that. But as you describe trying to put together support systems and a network for people that want to come out as affirming. That is the exact same thing that you've heard that I've heard people talk about helping LBGTQ people come out. It's because, you know, it's hard to come out. It's very personal. It's very frightening and you risk rejection of friends, family, and others. And also, you know, I mean, the, the payoff is you get to be who you are. Yeah. Um, but as a pastor, there's this same kind of dynamic. And that is, um, and especially if you're like, for example, if you're in the Southern Baptist convention, since they've made themselves all the news this week, um, <laughs> you're not just losing your church. You're losing any contact with any other church in your network that possibly would hire you. And yeah. there's, there's a reality to number one, feeling you're losing your, your mission and your calling, but also feeling, I mean, it's financial too. And yes. And and it's, it's, it's not easy. I'm cutting you off and I shouldn't because you're the guest, but it's not easy. Cause I, I remember when I moved out of fundamentalism and I quit pastoring, it was easy for me to say, okay, find a better church, find an Episcopal church or an ELCA church or something. And, but you know, when, when, as you describe the glass you're standing on, if your whole world is this fundamentalistic inerrant, the Bible reads this way, it teaches this way. If you depart from that, you suddenly have to question everything that you have been doing. And every interpretation. And that's where that foundation suddenly gets very shaky. Now, I think it's a brave place to go and it's the right place to go, but it's scary as hell. It is. And if I can just say, if my life is worth anything, I want it to say, you can do that journey because that's what I did. And I did it through hell. (laughs) Like I mean, it was a long, hard, I have gotten up in the morning and gone to bed at night in different places and never to return without my consent more than one time. I have lost every person in my life, every actual thing I've owned in my life, Mm. my identity, my dreams, all of it crashed over and over. And I would not want to do it again, but I wouldn't change a single thing of it. And the integrity of our hearts to say, This thing we're doing, this life we're doing, isn't about the cars and the and and the money and the power and the prestige and the I'm right and you're wrong and all that stuff. It's about community and building that like world 
that we're, we're supposed to be caring for. That's yeah. the thing we've been told to do. So I think my hope as I, as I proceed and figure out how to tell my story the best way I can is to say that journey's worth it, however bad it gets. And although I understand that from a very personal point of view, which is right. why I have such a heart for that journey where they're at. And I know that if they can get some supports, that will be great. And it's worth it. We gotta do it. We have to do it. People are dying and and and, and being harmed. And we're all the body of Christ. We're all in Mago Day. And we have to put these things down and and start coming toward each other. So I feel like every pain I've had in my life is meaningful because I can say with absolute genuine authenticity that I know that painful walk right. and you can do it. And the other side of it is this, is yes. this joy. It's beautiful. You know, there is so much joy. It's kind of interesting because the dynamic of list, of watching people interact, people that have deconstructed uh, versus those that haven't. And it almost makes the non-deconstructors angry when they see the others having a good time. Uh, <laughs> when somebody says, uh, one particular person that uh, I had on the podcast, Meg, uh, we'll talk about how wonderful her marriage is and yeah. people get mad. No, it's not. It can't be because you're, you're wearing the pants or whatever. And it's like, <laughs> it, it's like this fear of letting go, you yeah. know, because you're right. It, it, you know, it's, it, I was a hostage negotiator in a previous career. And, and Ooh. one of the, the, the most dangerous time, um, after the, well, the, the initial is always the most dangerous because people could get hurt or killed, but it's at that moment you're releasing the hostages because the, the hostage takers have been in charge the whole time and they've had power because they have these people and they know once they let them go, now they got to trust that negotiator wasn't lying. And I think that that's where we often are with people that are like, I, I want to let this go. I want to move forward. I want to have this joy. I want to love people unrestrained and I want to, accept people for who they are, but you're, you're kind of at that hostage negotiation, that moment of release where, holy shit, if I step on the other side of the veil and it's not what I think it is, I've just left behind everything that meant anything to me. And yes. only, only those of us like you that are saying I'm on the other side, it's step in the water's fine. You know, yes, it's, it it's is. so important. And, and, and I, I know what it's like to think Oh my God, I'm risking hell, fire, eternity yeah. more than once in my life to do this. But faith is not, is the, the opposite of faith is certainty. Yeah. So exactly. I had to take uh, the pain got too much. And so I, I can see from that vantage point, like they think that if they let go, that they're going to end up in this horrible but it isn't until you let go that you see how God can hold you up. You're safe yeah. with him. And I don't know how you can be anything but terrified constantly any other way. Faith, yeah. it's such a weird thing because it's like letting go and allowing uncertainty is the thing that gives you a foundation. I absolutely <laughs> agree. I've, more than once I've seen people that have posted things like proof about the resurrection and proof about, and I'm like, that's not faith. I mean, if you have proof, 
you know, and I've said more than once, I do believe in God, not quite the same way that is the traditional Christian view, but I do believe in the divine. And I believe that we all have that in us. Uh, and I don't really have a desire to try to prove it because that's not faith. And I'm okay with that. Yeah. You know, I'm okay. And I'm okay if somebody says, well, I think that's stupid or I think whatever. I'm like, that's fine. I'm not asking you to believe what I do, but, but I can tell you how I've been impacted, you know? Yes. Yeah. So your mission, what, it, what, it, it, you know, if somebody we're getting toward the end here, yeah. but I want to kind of get here. So what is your, what do you see now? And you've had some amazing moments of incredible pain in which, um, clarity has come from it. Yeah. What is, is, is your mission now? Do you think at least at this point in your life to work with these pastors and leaders that want to, I mean, is that kind of the heart of what you're doing now that yes. want to become affirming? Yeah. In my, in my, my PFLAG group, they, they have nominated, they've named me maybe the, uh, out faith outreach person. I want to start like having talks with pastors in the area. I, the other thing is after I came back from India, I really started looking into neuroscience and I got like certified as an interpersonal neurobiologist and really understanding how God's wired us. We need, we're very disconnected in our culture. We're very left mode brain disconnected. Mm -hmm. And we are, if it makes sense, we're happy with it. Well, let me tell you, if you have a bad relationship and you break up and you say that hurt, I'll never love again. Well, that makes sense, but that'll kill you. So not everything that yeah. makes sense is a good idea. But this, we have lost the holistic ability to to put a thing in a context. I think mm -hmm. that's my big thing. Is I want to talk. I, I want to tell my story for whoever that I don't have an agenda for that. Now I just want to tell it so people can see, Hey, look, there's a person who could be that wow down and look at me now and see if that's helpful. But as far as my everyday, cause I'm a therapist, so I do my work here and stuff, but I'm, and I'm a teacher and I go around the country and I teach and stuff like that. But I want to tell, I want people to understand experience and and context so that we need to get back to that place of, of being more holistic and 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 so relationship. I want to work on how do we build relationship across the divide when there are those. Justin Lee did it with the side A, side B. I want to do more of that. I want to do that with um, pastors and get them talking and build relationship and not Bible battles and yeah. all of that stuff, right? So locally, I'll do that. Anybody, I, I'm still trying to formulate it, um, which is why I reach out to different pastors and talk to them and different people. and like, what is your idea and whatever? My company has the word network in it. And I love the idea uh -huh. of network. So I just want to create a place where people can go and ask questions non-judgmentally, get answers, not we're going to bash them. And if they want to walk away and say, I don't believe it, cool, where they see the love that we're trying to demonstrate. I love that. I, I love it a lot. And I, I think, you know, one of the things that you're doing um, that's obvious uh, by the way you've described it, uh, because on, on Twitter, it's anonymous. You're not really connecting with people. You're just kind of, it's, it's like an open debate place, but when you really talk and that's all social media or you know, social media, but I think when you sit down with people, in fact, I had a guy one day that, kind of half threatened me. He kind of gave this, well, if we were, 
you know, I dare you to come up here and, you know, whatever. He dared me to come up to Dallas or whatever. And, and, and I said, well, if I came up there, I'd probably buy you a beer and would sit down and just chat. And, and he kind of laughed, you know, because, because that's probably true. I mean, most of the people, I mean, there's a few that probably can't, you know, that want to be reached, but most people, if you, and it's back to your change management, if you find that common goal, you know, and say, well, let's, we can all at least agree on this. You know, there's some things, you know, being kind to others, again, getting away from social media arguments and and talking to people heart to heart, you know, and for some, it's hard to get beyond where their beliefs are, but connecting personally and understanding and then being with each other and, and struggling with these things. I mean, I think it's okay to wrestle with them. Yeah. And that's where you talked about the uncertainty. I mean, we need to live in uncertainty because that's when we ask questions. Yes. You know, and that's all there really is for them. I mean, you know, the sun's going to come up and you're going to breathe until you don't. But really, we're, we have lots of pattern recognition, but we actually don't have a whole lot of certainty. So yeah. we do it anyway. And, and just being able to see how that works and. Yeah, it, we're not going to get there by arguing, uh, fa- you know, Bible stuff and whatever. I can hold my own if somebody asks me, oh, I, yeah. you know, but at the same time, it's it's seeing when you see that there's a person, you know, one of the things that came to mind when you were saying something earlier, I'm like, some people, they come at me like I, I'm, I'm dumb and they don't know stuff mm-hmm. or whatever. And I'm like, if you knew my life, <laughs> yeah, if you knew my story. I wonder if you might just see me differently, talk to yeah. me differently. And it's the same for every, like some of the people on Twitter. I mean, just, I have had the opportunity because like I said, I don't know the rules. So I just say, Hey, do you want to talk? And we jump on a call and we talk. Um, they're just, how do you see that? How do you see the beauty of these people, the love right. of these people and then call them an abomination? I mean, just, you can't do it. It doesn't it's- work anymore. It's, it's near. Yeah, I agree. And, and I, I remember I went to an Episcopal church one Sunday here in Austin and there was quite a few uh, couples in there, uh, various gay couples, straight couples, whatever. Uh, and they're all doing the same thing. You know, they're all worshiping, they're hugging each other during the greeting time and everything. And it's like, you know, I wish I could bring a bunch of Baptists in here and say, just look, yeah. you know, these aren't people that are out you know, just wanting to go enjoy their sin. These are people that are serious mm-hmm. about their faith. And I think that what you're doing and where you're headed is is needed because I do think that there's nobody helping usher in people that are not affirming. Um, I think that you're on one side of the aisle or the other, and then you stake your ground and that's where you are. And I think trying to bridge that divide, I've, I've talked, um, on previous podcasts about trying to see the divine and others, even those that, you know, politically or religiously or whatever are complete opposite of me, but you know, they're also an image bearer. They're also somebody that has, you know, and, and how can I love them? And, and, you know, it's, it's hard, but I think your work on trying to do this because you've been in a place of rejection and you've been in a place of desperation and now you're in a place of, of healing and reaching to others. It's amazing. It's just amazing. Oh, and if anybody hears my story and then they can look at another person and say they're not okay, it ain't over yet. You can't see yeah. that. We've it's a journey. Right. We're their- on a journey. And, yes. you oh. know, I've even at some point I've said, <laughs> I've seen people so bad. I've said, well, if you don't get it right in this life, maybe the next one, because I, <laughs> I don't even know what else to say, but, but you're right. I mean, I think, 
I think it's, it, it, you know, we're going to get there. And, yeah. and I think it's, it's beautiful what you do. Thank you so much for being Thank on my know. podcast. Uh, you've got a beautiful heart and I just appreciate the work you do. I've seen some of it on Twitter. I did come around your website. I do want to tell our listeners that the links will be up on my page as well. They can go look at your uh, links on your website and um, just uh, thank you for all that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time. I so appreciate it. Thank you. Well, that's another episode of Observations from Life. I hope you enjoyed it. Be sure to check out my website at www.obsfromlife.com. You can find information on past episodes, people who have appeared on the podcast, as well as a merch store. Until next time, this is Scott. Thank you so much for listening.